Hi, and thank you for listening to Ask the Pastor. This is a segment of the West Hills podcast where you have the opportunity to ask and receive biblical answers on your questions from our lead pastor, Will Duvall. I'm your new host, Brian Wells, back after a long summer break. This week's question comes to us from Lori, who asks, Why do some believe that speaking in tongues is not a gift for today? Thanks for the question, Lori. This has been a hotly debated topic within the church world for five or six decades now since the rise of the charismatic movement back in the early 1960s. And like most of our Ask the Pastor topics, we could spend a long time on it, but I simply want to try and do three things here. Number one, answer Lori's question very directly. Why do some Christians believe that God no longer gives his people the gift of speaking in tongues? Secondly, uh, give the counter-argument. Why do other Christians believe that God does still give the gift of tongues? And then thirdly, in closing, tell you which of those two positions I personally find more convincing. Uh, Before we even dive in, I suppose we should begin by first defining our terms, namely what is the gift of tongues. I'll pull this definition from uh, an article written by New Spring Church uh, out in North Carolina. Speaking in tongues is when an individual speaks a language that he or she does not know. These tongues can include human languages with which the speaker is unfamiliar, such as in Acts chapter 2, verses 8 through 11, after the Spirit descends on the early believers at Pentecost, and uh, they begin speaking, and the, the crowd there gathered in Jerusalem uh, for Pentecost responds, how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language, Parthen- uh, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, etc., etc., Um, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. So it can be human languages, or tongues can include non-human, holy languages with uh, with which no person is familiar, such as 1 Corinthians 14, verse 2. One who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God, Paul writes, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. Now that's a claim that... um, those who do not uh, believe that speaking in tongues uh, is still um, uh, relevant in the church would would uh, maybe refute. But uh, the ability to speak in tongues is one of the many potential spiritual gifts given to Christians by the Holy Spirit that is listed in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 12, all the way through ch- chapter 14 there. Um, again, that's a, a brief, concise definition of speaking in tongues. So with that definition in place, let's tackle objectives one and two concurrently. Why do some Christians believe that God no longer gives people this gift of speaking in tongues? And then why do others believe that he still does? And in answering both those questions, I'm going to draw heavily here from a a few different sources. Uh, The first is a pair of articles written for the Gospel Coalition back in 2014, one by a professor of New Testament at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, Dr. Tom Schreiner, entitled, Why I Am a Cessationist. couple more terms to define quickly here. A cessationist is a Christian who believes that the so-called miraculous gifts of the Spirit, particularly the gifts of prophecy, tongues, interpretation of tongues, healings, and miracles have ceased, that the end of the apostolic age, um, the, the age of the apostles in the first century AD, brought about a cessation of the miracles associated with that age. The opposing article in that 
dialogue pair is from Pastor Sam Storms, also written for TGC Gospel Coalition, entitled Why I Am a Continuationist. And as you may have guessed, a continuationist is the opposite of a cessationist, namely someone who believes the miraculous gifts of the Spirit have continued all the way up through the present. And the second pair of articles I'll pull even more heavily from is an exchange, a similar exchange between popular theologian, pastor blogger Tim Chalice, entitled uh, Case for Cessationism, and then a critique of and a response to Chalice's um, article and argument by Pastor Andrew Wilson. And we will uh, link, link these resources for you in the show notes today. But I will start with uh, the, the Chalice-Wilson uh, debate. Uh, Chalice offers seven arguments for his position that God no longer gives Christians the gift of tongues, and Wilson responds directly to each. I'm just going to list both their arguments without inserting my own commentary, allow you to judge for yourself whose case is more compelling and biblical, and then I'll just weigh in at the end. So no, argument number one for cessationism from... Chalice is the unique role of miracles. Quote, There were only three primary periods in which God worked miracles through unique men. The first was with Moses. The second was during the ministries of Elijah and Elisha. The third was with Christ and his apostles. The primary purpose of miracles has always been to establish the credibility of one who speaks the word of God, not just any teacher, but those uh, who had been given direct words by God counter-argument for continuationism by Wilson, quote, the crucial word here, which appears twice and is somewhat mysterious on both occasions, is primary. Where in the Bible does it say that the miracles of Moses, Elijah, or Elisha are more primary than those of Joshua opening the Jordan River and stopping the sun in its tracks, or Samuel who had the gift of prophecy, or David and Solomon, or Isaiah, or Daniel, or for that matter, any of the canonical prophets, where does it say that the primary purpose of a miracle is always to establish the credibility of the one who speaks the word of God? One might have thought the primary purpose of the Exodus was to lead Israel out of slavery. The primary purpose of the fall of Jericho was to defeat God's enemies. The primary purpose of the destruction of the Assyrians was to preserve Jerusalem and so on. And even if the primary purpose of all miracles was authenticating a preacher which cannot be shown, it would by no means indicate that this was the only purpose. Uh, argument number two for cessationism from Chalice, the end of the gift of apostleship. Chalice writes, quote, in two places in the New Testament, Paul refers to the apostles as one of the gifts Christ gave his church. That's 1 Corinthians 12, 28 and Ephesians 4. So at least one New Testament gift, the gift of apostleship, has ceased. That means there is a significant difference in the work of of the Spirit between the time of the Apostles and today because one of the most miraculous displays of the Spirit disappeared with the passing of the apostolic age. Once you agree that there are no Apostles today at the same level with Peter and Paul, you have admitted that there was a major change in the gifting of the Spirit between the apostolic age and the post-apostolic age. Counter-argument for continuationism by Wilson. This argument takes us nowhere. All agree that the eyewitness apostles have ceased, and all agree that, say, pastors and teachers have not ceased. Only if we can show that all New Testament miracles, prophecies, tongues, and healings came via apostles, which is patently not the case, 
would this hold any water at all. Within conservative evangelicalism, it has become commonplace to divide the apostolate into two neat types. There are the capital A apostles of Jesus Christ, comprising the twelve, James, Barnabas, possibly Silas, and then finally Paul, eyewitnesses of the resurrection, officers of the church personally commissioned by Jesus and with the capacity to write or authorize the scriptures, pioneer into new areas, lay foundations in the church, uh, and exercise authority over them. Then there are the lowercase a apostles of the church, including Andronicus, Junia, Epaphroditus, the brothers of 2 Corinthians 8, verse 23, possibly Timothy, messengers that were sent out among the churches but with no eyewitness appearance or commission from Jesus and without the capacity to write scripture or pioneer or lay foundations or exercise authority over churches. And uh, Sam Storms adds here, uh, there is extensive New Testament evidence of so-called miraculous gifts among Christians who are not apostles. In other words, numerous non-apostolic men and women, young and old, across breadth of the Roman Empire, consistently exercised gifts of the Spirit. And Stephen and Philip ministered in the power of signs and wonders. Others, aside from the apostles who exercised miraculous gifts, include the 70 who were commissioned in Luke chapter 10, uh, at least 108 people among the 120 who were gathered in the upper room on the day of Pentecost, uh, Stephen in Acts 6 and 7, uh, Philip in Acts 8, Ananias in Acts 9, church members in Antioch, Acts 13, uh, anonymous converts in, in Ephesus, Acts chapter 19, verse 6, women at Caesarea, Acts chapter 21, verses 8 and 9, the unnamed brethren of Galatians uh, in uh, Galatians 3, verse 5, believers in Rome, Romans 12, 6 through 8, believers in Corinth in chapters 12 through 14 of that book, and finally Christians in Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians 5, 19 and 20. So, <laughs> lots of other non-apostle uh, people in Scripture who were working uh, signs and wonders and supernatural gifts. Argument number three for, for cessationism from Tim Chalice, the foundational nature of the New Testament, apostles and prophets. The New Testament identifies uh, the apostles and prophets as the foundation of the church in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 20 through 22. In the context, it is clear that Paul is referring here not to the Old Testament prophets, but to New Testament prophets. Once the apostles and prophets finished their role in laying the foundation of the church, their gifts were completed. Rebuttal from Andrew Wilson. This argument runs aground on the sandbanks of Romans chapter 12 and 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 in particular, in which it is assumed that local churches experience prophecy in their meetings, yet without such prophecy serving as foundational for the church for all time or being even written down in the canon of Scripture. Uh, clearly, there is a foundational role for the apostles and prophets of whom Paul speaks in Ephesians, but this, is in, this in no way implies either that all prophecy has now ceased or obviously that tongues or healings have now ceased. Argument number four for cessationism uh, from Chalice is the nature of the New Testament miraculous gifts. If the Spirit was still moving as he was in the first century, then you would expect that the gifts would be of the same type. Consider the speaking of tongues. At Pentecost, the languages spoken were already existing, understandable languages. The New Testament gift was speaking in a known language and dialect, not an ecstatic language like you see people speaking in today in churches. Prophecies, which were then infallible, and healings are also different in character today from the New Testament period. 
rebuttal from Andrew Wilson. Again, this hits serious problems when it comes to 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. Uh, already mentioned uh, above, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 2 says, The one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God, for no one understands him. He utters mysteries in the Spirit. Paul also writes in chapter 13, If I speak in tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm just a noisy gong. And he goes on, and so Paul seems to make categories for both uh, the gift of tongues of men, of human languages, as well as of angels, angelic uh, ecstatic utterances. Uh, and then Wilson continues, which scholars widely agree refers to ecstatic speech rather than known earthly languages and to prophetic revelation, which needs to be weighed or judged rather than instantly being added to the infallible canon of Scripture. Argument number five for cessationism, uh, the testimony of church history. Chalice writes, the practice of, the ap uh, of apostolic gifts declines even during the lifetime of the apostles. Even in the written books of the New Testament, the miraculous gifts are mentioned less as the date of their writing gets later. After the New Testament era, we see the miraculous gifts cease altogether. John Chrysostom and St. Augustine speak of their ceasing. Rebuttal from Andrew Wilson. There are two errors here. The first is that miracles are mentioned less in New Testament books that are written later. Uh, for instance, the book of Acts is certainly written after the books of First Thessalonians and James, and very probably after the other Pauline and, and Petrine letters, uh, yet it contains far more miracles. And the Gospel of John, among the latest books written, has many miracles as well. The second error is that we see the miraculous gifts cease after the New Testament. Again, this begs the question by assuming that subsequent accounts of and responses to miraculous <clears throat> or prophetic activity from the Didache and the Montanist onward are inaccurate or exaggerated. <clears throat> In any case, this sort of argument that since something gradually disappeared from the church over the course of the first two or three centuries, it must therefore be invalid, should strike any Protestant as providing several hostages to fortune. Uh, Sam Storm adds, uh, it simply isn't the case that the gifts ceased or disappeared from early church life following the death of the last apostle. Space doesn't even permit me to cite all the massive evidence in this regard, so I refer you to four articles I wrote with extensive documentation, see spiritual gifts in church history. That might be another one we could link in the show notes today. Um, <clears throat> argument number six for cessationism, Tim Chalice writes, the sufficiency of scripture. The spirit speaks only in and through the inspired word. He doesn't call and direct his people through subjective messages and modern day bestsellers. His word is external to us and objective. Rebuttal from Andrew Wilson again, this is not so much an argument for cessationism as a restatement of it. Suffice it to say that James and Paul, to mention just two apostles, envisage Christians being given wisdom by God, experiencing the Spirit crying out Abba in their hearts, and being given spontaneous revelation during church meetings, none of which conflict with their high view of the scriptures. Argument number seven for cessationism. Chalice writes, the New Testament governed the miraculous gifts. Whenever the New Testament gift of tongues was to be practiced, there were specific rules that were to be followed. There was to be order and structure as well as an interpreter. 
Uh, that's 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 14. Paul also lays down rules for prophets and prophecy. Tragically, most charismatic practice today clearly disregards these commands. The result is not a work of the Spirit, but of the flesh. Rebuttal from Wilson. I'm not qualified to comment on whether this is true of most charismatics, as you say, rather than some, but to the extent that it is true, I wholeheartedly agree. That miraculous gifts need to be governed and practiced wisely in line with the New Testament. I agree. Clearly, however, this is not an argument against using charismatic gifts. It is an argument against using them badly. So, with all, with all of those seven arguments for and against uh, cessationism, continuationism, I, before I weigh in personally, I just do want to add, uh, in addition to these rebuttals um, that Sam Storms and Andrew Wilson also collectively make two other positive cases for continuationism, significant ones um, that I think are worth noting here, and to which any cessationist must be able to respond. Chalice and, and Schreiner both do respond to these. I, I'm running long on time. I don't want to include the rebuttals, but here are two other um, positive cases for continuationism. The first is an exegetical one. Sam Storm writes, we must also take note of 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 13, verses 8 through 12. Paul asserts here that spiritual gifts will not pass away until the coming of the, quote, perfect. If the, quote, perfect is indeed the consummation of God's redemptive purposes as expressed in the new heaven and the new earth following Christ's return, then we can confidently expect him to continue blessing and empowering his church with uh, the supernatural gifts until that time. A similar point is made in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 13. There, Paul speaks of spiritual gifts together with the office of apostle, and in particular, the gifts of prophecy, evangelism, pastor, and teacher, as building up the church, quote, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Since the latter, most assuredly, has not yet been attained by the church, we're not perfectly uh, measuring up to the fullness of Christ, we can confidently anticipate the presence and power of such supernatural gifts until the day that Christ arrives. And the second uh, argument that both Storms and Wilson make is the experiential argument. Storms writes, although it's technically not a reason or or argument for being a continuationist, I cannot ignore experience. The fact is I've seen all spiritual gifts in operation, tested and confirmed them, and experienced them firsthand on countless occasions. As stated, this is less a reason to become a continuationist and more a confirmation, although not an infallible one, of the validity of that decision. Experience in isolation from the Bible proves little, but experience must be noted, especially if it illustrates or embodies what we see in God's Word. And uh, Wilson adds, in order to explain the enormous number of miraculous experiences testified to by charismatics, a cessationist has to resort to an awful lot of accusations of fraud, deliberate deceit, and delusion amongst some extremely level-headed, critical, and theologically informed individuals. And so with all of that weight on both sides of of uh, this 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 debate uh, in mind, and probably more arguments. Again, we could fill volumes, and many have, um, with arguments both for and against. But with those kind of summary arguments, and especially of the the, the case for cessationism, here here is my humble take in closing. Uh, again, lots of 
lots of faithful, uh, godly um, pastors, theologians, scholars, uh, folks that are way smarter than me and have researched this way more than me, way more qualified to weigh in on both sides of it. You know, on the one hand, you've got for cessationism, guys like Schreiner and, and Tim Chalice and John MacArthur and R.C. Sproul. On the other side, of, for continuationism, you've got guys like Sam Storm, Andrew Wilson, John Piper, Wayne Grudem, and the list goes on on both sides. But with all that factoring in for me personally, I think I would, I would self-identify probably as a, a cautious continuationist. Um, the, the, the point that I do find, I guess, most convincing from the cessationist standpoint is, is this argument from church history. Um, the idea that even in the early church, uh, they, they, you see the witness testifying to a gradual decrease over time in supernatural workings of the Spirit in even the, the early years after the apostolic era. era. And uh, certainly today that that is, I think, Oftentimes, the kind of de facto primary argument offered by cessationists is like, hey, if the gifts of miracles and healings and, and even speaking in tongues were still active in the church today, why don't we see them more often? You know, why, why is it, you know, just the kind of charismatic or uh, uh, um, Pentecostal or whatever churches, you know, if, if we too in other evangelical reform circles or, or just in the church more broadly, if if we're also believers, if we're also filled with the Spirit, why don't we see more of these these gifts? And um, you know, I guess for me, I, I can kind of get on board with some of that that logic of the cessationist that um, it does seem like at least one of the main reasons that uh, these supernatural supernatural gifts were given in Scripture um, was for the purpose of publicly attesting to the truth of the gospel uh, that that you know the apostles and and other you know capital a or lowercase a as wilson makes the distinction that these these early christians were, were given these supernatural gifts uh, so that those uh, listening to their their presentation of the gospel might have extra you know, proof of the of the truth of the message they were proclaiming that there really isn't you know this power in the name of Jesus, and then as that that gospel message went forth, and as the missionary movement of the early church exploded, and the gospel began to be taken uh, to to all corners of the earth, um, which is still a a mission in progress, we still haven't completed um, that. You start to see some of this supernatural activity be, begin to, to decrease over time. That seems to just experientially be, be the case, in, in, I guess, to me. That, that seems to kind of make some sense. Um, but even then, you know, I will, I, I will be honest enough to let Sam Storms uh, rebut that, that point uh, here's what he writes about that. He says, Nowhere in the New Testament is the purpose or function of the miraculous or charismatic gifts reduced to attestation. The miraculous, in whatever form, serves several other distinct purposes. Doxological, to glorify God, and he gives references biblically for all these. Um, evangelistic, to prepare the way for the gospel to be made known. See Acts chapter 9, verses 32 to 43. Pastoral, 
as an expression of compassion and love and care for the sheep, Matthew 14, 14, Mark 1, 40 and 41, and edifying to build up and strengthen believers, 1 Corinthians 12, 7, and for the common good, 1 Corinthians 14, 3 through 5. All the gifts of the Spirit then, whether tongues or teaching, prophecy or mercy, healing or helping, were given, among other reasons, for edification, building up, encouraging, instructing, consoling, and sanctifying the body of Christ. Therefore, even if the ministry of the miraculous gifts to attest and authenticate has ceased, a point uh, I concede only for the sake of argument, such gifts would continue to function in the church for the other reasons cited. And so... Again, I, you know, I, I'll be honest enough to let that, that the conti- continuationist rebut my uh, natural predilection there to to want to say, you know what, why don't we see more of uh, the, the gift of tongues at a, at a church like West Hills? You know, I want to believe that you know if we're really a spirit filled church, that we would see all these gifts of the spirit being manifest more more broadly. Um, but you know, again, according to Sam Storms. Um, there, there, there are other explanations there that I want to be open to. And so, again, with all of that said, um, are, are there abuses of the gift of tongues? Without a doubt. You know, I remember um, one of my charismatic Pentecostal friends, um, Culver, when Polly and I spent time in Indiana, um, I remember him getting pretty jaded. You know, he, he, was, he was Pentecostal, and, and he—, he you know, share with me. Yeah, I've spoken in tongues. I, and I kind of started to hear him at, at various times when we would pray together uh, as a community group, slip into that even, and, and, and you know, whether you want to call it tongues or whatever. Um, so I've, I've, I've been with believers who I know are genuine, spirit-filled believers who um, I, I, I've heard speak in tongues. But he also confessed to me, you know, how, how he has gotten turned off to the idea, uh, even of 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 sometimes corporately this speaking in tongues in churches, like he watched, he walked into um, his church's bathroom one Sunday and uh, heard a guy locked who had locked himself in, in the stall and was like literally practicing these kind of nonsensical phrases that he was going to go out and and repeat. In, in the corporate gathering so that people would, you know, think that he was more spiritual and f- filled with the spirit or whatever. Like, you know, those kinds of things obviously have a way of, of jading us and turning us off to the idea that, you know, this is, this is real, that, that, that speaking in tongues is a real thing. Um, you know, certainly there's other theological uh, abuses um, or, or at least kind of just misinterpretations, you know, this idea in some charismatic circles that you have to speak in tongues. Like if you don't speak in tongues, you're not really filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, you're not, or, or, or at, at worst, you're not even a Christian. Um, there's absolutely no biblical warrant for that kind of a, a, a mindset and argument. In fact, um, if you reread First Corinthians twelve through fourteen, you know Paul's going to argue that speaking in tongues is one of the lesser gifts. He, you know, he specifically says in chapter fourteen, uh, you, you ought to desire the higher gifts, especially something like prophecy. Prophecy is better than speaking in tongues. You know, being an apostle, being a teacher, is better than speaking in tongues. And so, um, you know, it's it's clearly not something that every Christian is is going to do. Um, you know, another explicit mandate often ignored by, in many charismatic circles, I think Chalice talked about this, touched on this, is the, the need for an interpreter in 1 Corinthians 14, 27, 28. Um, so the idea that, you know, 
you'd have worship services where you just got people falling out on the floor and everybody speaking in these crazy languages that nobody else understands, and it's just pandemonium. That is clearly unbiblical. You know, Paul says in in 1 Corinthians 14, uh, God is a God of order, not chaos. And so, um, you know, our, our worship services ought to be orderly so that if an unbeliever comes in, you know, he's not like, man, you guys are just crazy and writes off, uh, writes off Christianity. You know, we want to we, we wanna be um, thinking about our, our public witness there. So with all of that said, you know, one of the things that really is personally very um, persuasive and powerful for me, once I've opened the door to the possibility that speaking in tongues uh, is not just a, a load of fooey, is the fact that, again, I do personally know many godly, faithful uh, believers, including right here at West Hills, including Lori, who I know submitted this, uh, this, this question, and Lori and I have had uh, multiple personal conversations where she shared some, uh, some experiences that she's had and of, of, of these supernatural gifts of, of her speaking in tongues. And uh, again, I don't have to go through all the thousands and thousands or millions of, of charismatics out there and, and dis, you know, disregard all of their experiences. And, and, you know, Andrew Wilson made the point about proving that they're all frauds or they're self-deceived or whatever. I just need to look at, you know, the, the couple cases of, of close brothers and sisters that I have and say, you know what, um, I don't think that, that Lori or, or Eric or, you know, any number of other more charismatic, um, uh, brothers and sisters that I have, I don't think that they're they're just making that up. I I, I take their experiences uh, seriously, and um, so this is just a point of personal conviction for me. You know, as a pastor, I uh, I resonate, I identify with um, you know John Piper, for instance, who who is a continuationist, also a cautious continuationist, and recognizes that there are abuses, um, but also recognizes, hey, I think this is a real thing, and I think that this is something, therefore, that we should. Uh, be seeking and, and praying. You know, uh, Paul says in First Corinthians twelve. You know, you should you ought to pray for all the gifts and especially the higher gifts. So especially you know teaching and and, and shepherding and and uh, prophecy and whatever. But but also um, the the gift of tongues. And so it's not, it's a point of conviction for me. I need to pray for that. And so I, I listen to Piper um, recall how you know he he will uh, every now and again. Uh, He'll he'll be studying back over this or reading back over First Corinthians or whatever, and he'll he'll just kind of stop and pray and ask, you know, God, would you give me the gift of tongues? And you know, according to to Piper, he says, I've God has never uh, he's never blessed me with that. You know, his his answer to me seems to be, um, no, I'm not going to give you that. Uh, I've given you the gift of teaching, and uh, that's how you're going to edify the body and bless the body. And uh, but I'm going to continue to to try and um, bring folks to, to your church, to Bethlehem, that can bless the body with the gift of tongues. And so, you know, that's another, again, point of conviction for me is, you know, how, how can we as a church uh, validate and, and utilize um, everyone's spiritual giftedness at West Hills? And so uh, that's kind of where I fall on it for what it's worth. Um, but uh, should probably wrap all of this up by, by reminding us again that this is uh, – at best, a secondary issue, tertiary issue. Uh, you know, we do, we don't as a church have a 
statement of faith on this at all. We're doing our essentials um, sermon series right now in the fall of 2021. We will not be covering speaking in tongues because it's not an essential thing for us, um, but it is an important uh, thing, and uh, it's worth studying, and it's worth uh, uh, discussing. And so I hope this has been a, a blessing to you. Um, certainly preparing for uh, this topic was, was a blessing to me. Well, that's it for this week's episode of Ask the Pastor. Remember that you can ask your questions each week at the info bar at West Hills or by submitting them online through our website at www.westhillsstl.org. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast if you haven't yet, and thanks for listening.